Pastor Mark asked if I'd be interested. I said, of course, I, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's, uh, it's like coming home, and I very much look forward to our opportunity to share around the Word of God this morning, and um, particularly to say, first of all, hello from all of the churches of the association. Do you know, most of you know, but not all of you perhaps, that there are 60 churches in the Alberta Association, and uh, we work together as an, a, a, a bunch of churches that are choosing to associate. We're not a denomination where there's direction from above that says, this is what you have to do, and this is what you have to do. But this is a group of churches that say, I think we can do way better if we work together. And a part of that working together involves all kinds of ministries, education ministries, camp ministries, ministries with the inner city, and international ministries, things that we do cooperatively that we really would have a difficult time doing as one congregation, but together we can do amazing things through Christ who strengthens us, right? And uh, I'm particularly uh, taken as we were able to engage in worship this morning, and thank you for the team for leading us in that worship. Because as we considered the theme this month of uh, to the ends of the earth, uh, missions everywhere, across the street, you know, within where we serve in, in our businesses and places of work, schools where we attend, families uh, of which we are part, Wherever, wherever we are crossing to someone who needs to know the love of God is international missions in so many ways, cross-cultural missions in other ways, but missions nonetheless, to the ends of the earth. And of course, that extends to us, as we were hearing from the children's story, um, to places far away that some have been able to be part of and, and some are, are supportive in that important, and those important endeavors. But the importance, as we've already been unfolding in our worship time today, is that missions is always preceded by a constant awareness of the presence of God. Uh, and a, a reality check about the fact that God is with us. That it is God's sovereignty that we pay attention to first because missions emanates from that. That's what really was happening in that uh, tremendous vision that happened to Isaiah so, so long ago, as we know very well. Many of us know this scripture really well from Isaiah chapter 6, when he had a vision of God. He said, I, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, you know? And the train of his garments filled the temple and, and he said, and it was so fun, I can't even begin to imagine, right? Is that what happened? No, he, he said, as that happened, I said, woe is me, for I am a man, a person of unclean lips, and living among a people, a world of people with unclean lips. Of, I'm, a, I'm in the holy presence of God, and I am an unholy person. I'm not perfect, I've got issues in my life. And I'm living among a world where people have issues. Nothing like our world today, right? 
But that is the vision he saw. In the presence of God, we get a reality check about what yet needs to be done in the world around us. And as that vision goes on and he is in a woeful place, you know, suddenly the seraphim comes and places a hot coal on his lips and purifies him, which is a a picture of, of the truth of the good news that in God's love he's set a way to bring that holiness back into our lives, to bring cleansing and bring newness and fullness. And it's in, it's in that vision of fullness, of cleansing, that then the next question comes. Now, who is going to go for me? Who's going to be my servant? And Isaiah, almost in, in great humility and almost in trepidation, says, you know the words, right? He says, here am I, send me. So the worship that we do together is always that important dynamic as a corporate body of believers to help us get again a picture of the truth that God is with us, God is within us, God is among us. And, and because of that, we are set free. And because of that, we have opportunity to be instruments of setting others free. We have been reconciled. We are being called to be reconcilers. This is the call of mission. And when God speaks, okay, who's ready to go? And what's the answer? Isaiah said, here am I, send me. We hear God's call for response. And we hear Isaiah in that confrontation to respond, standing up and saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to stand up and be counted. And when we think of of the scriptures, we can think of person after person who in so many ways were just like Isaiah, ready to go, ready to respond, ready to be God's instruments, recognizing the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God and the love of God and the challenge that God provides in all of that. People who would stand up and be counted like Noah, like Abraham, like Moses, like Joshua and Ruth and David and Esther, like we just know the children are hearing about, and Daniel and and Elijah and John the Baptist and Stephen and Philip and Paul. There are many in the scriptures that, that, that become examples for us, aren't there, of mission in various dimensions of life, in their own world, in their day, in history. But there is a a lesser known, maybe perhaps unknown for some of us, but powerful example of someone who decided to, to respond to the call of God, to what was being a challenge before him, and someone who we don't often read about, but someone who I uh, discovered uh, not so long ago from Bill Hybels when he unpacked this scripture for me one day, and I I thought, there's an example of someone that maybe we don't notice. It's tucked away in a relatively unfamiliar scripture in 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14, where we meet the uncommon readiness in the context of a military showdown between the arch rivals of the ancient Middle East, the Israelites and the Palestinians, oh, I should say the Philistines, 
Some things seem to never change. When we open up the scriptures to this dramatic account, we discover the cards were definitely stacked in favor of the Philistines. So if you have your Bibles or if you want to follow along on the screen, that is fine. We can unpack this scripture together. Beginning in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, verse 5, we hear that the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sands of the seashore. That's, that's what was the challenge before the people of Israel. What did the forces of Israel look like? Well, it says in the next verses that, that the 3,000 men that King Saul had originally assembled drastically dwindled in the face of this mighty Philistine military machine. It says, when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical, that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Therefore, when all was said and done, we read in verse 15 of chapter 13 that Saul counted the men who were with him and they numbered 600. Wow. That's impressive. 600 men. How many chariots? None. Uh, how many horsemen? Well, actually none. 600 trembling men versus how many other chariots on the other side of the Philistines, 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and multitude of soldiers as the sand of the sea. Got to be kidding, right? If that wasn't bad enough, there's more. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, it says that raiding parties were being sent out by the Philistines' camp in three detachments, one towards Oprah, She's older than we think. You see. One towards Oprah in the vicinity of Shaul, another towards Beth Haran, and the third towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeduim facing the desert. It seems that while King Saul was holed up with his meager crew of 600, the Philistines were setting out bands of destroyers to ravage the Israelite settlements to prevent any further grassroots support from among the people of Israel, essentially to demoralize the general population. But hang on, there's even more. We discover in verse 19 that not a blacksmith could be found in the land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So all Israel went down to the, where? To the Philistines to have their plowshares, their mattocks, their axes and sickles sharpened. They had economic superiority over the people of Israel, the Philistines did. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares, maddox, third of a shekel for sharpening forks as axes and for repointing the goads. The Israelites, you see, were still in the Bronze Age while the Philistines had brought with them from across the Mediterranean the latest developments in iron. So really, the Philistines held the monopoly in the maintenance and servicing of weapons and implements, forcing the Israelites into agricultural, military, economic dependence upon them. In the final analysis, things didn't look very good for the Israelites, right? In fact, things look pretty pathetic. 1 Samuel 13, 22 summarizes saying that on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan 
had a sword or spear in their hand. Not one except Saul and, Saul and his son Jonathan had a sword and spear. Oh, that's great. They were well armed. Now, that ought to go a long way against a well-equipped, massively outnumbering, strategically superior army. And so when all was considering, with all the odds, the obstacles that faced Saul and the fledgling crew that he had, crew that he had is it surprising to read in verse 2 of chapter 14 that Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gebeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron? He had a migraine in Migron right there, you know. As Saul was sorting through reality, the situation must have seemed hopeless, leaving him frustrated, to say the least, bringing him to the point of despair. The people were looking to him for help, but what could he do? As his confidence dwindled, so did his esteem in the eyes of his followers, and soon all he could do was sit under a pomegranate tree and brood in anguish over the overwhelming situation. The circumstances which Saul encountered in the overwhelming resistance of the Philistines seemed to reduce him to inactivity, even to depression, and effectively served to paralyze his leadership. Now life, in general, can do that to all of us, can't it? At times, circumstances can leave us feeling helpless. Ever been there? Life circumstances can lead us to be confused or ineffective or paralyzed, feeling alone to the point of despair. And life in ministry, however we perceive that ministry to be in the local church, in the communities that we're trying to be salt and light, life in ministry can do that to us as well. Reality in mission to the end of the earth can lead us to throw up our hands in despair and saying, what's the use? While the global community is growing ever more accessible, world sentiment is growing ever more resistant along lines of religion and spirituality, isn't it? Towards anything that smacks of authoritative truth, People go, oh, of that which purports to be right, that which purports to be right implies something else is wrong or incomplete. And in a day like ours, that is like, woo, you know, that's intolerant. In a day like ours, in the name of tolerance, any effort to influence, especially if there's passion involved, is highly suspect, deemed coercive, maybe even abusive. Add to that the fact that Missions is becoming international missions, for especially, but missions in general is becoming increasingly complex and inexpensive. And add to that the sense that the church in North America is increasingly prone to a protectionist mentality, isn't it? Where it's seldom spoken but frequently intimated that it may be just time to let all those People in faraway places look after themselves because we've got enough to deal with right here, don't we? And add to that the sheer complexities of running the missions gauntlet while preparing people to go into international places and 
preparing people to effectively minister cross-culturally, even in our own locale, or whatever that case may be. Do you know what that's like? Do you feel that sometimes? Like, whew, there's so much to try to overcome. I don't even know. I mean, the church is doing okay, but this is, there's billions of people in this world. What, what can we do? We're just a small group of believers in Alberta, you know. You know. I recall, and uh, my wife and I have had the privilege in, in twice in our lives, in 1985 and, and then 2006, to spend most of a year in Mombila. Have you, have you ever been to Mombila? You gotta, you gotta say it, because it, it makes me feel like I'm back there, you know. Be, it's, you know, you don't say Mombila. You go Mombila. It's a good place. It's a place, it's right along the, the, the border of Nigeria and Cameroon. It's up on a beautiful mountain plateau. It's on the equator. You know, everything grows there. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. The people are gracious. But uh, there are challenges there as well. Anyway, my, uh, when we were pastoring at Central, I, the Central gave us a leave in 2006 to take our whole family to go to Mombila. And, and, uh, and we packed up our house and put it in a storage. That was a bit of a challenge with six children and all of that goes, you know. Packing up enough goods along for a year uh, with schooling books and materials and, and important items that we wanted to take along to minister, raising funds, Getting vaccinations, well, that was fun. Arranging uh, banking, dealing with well-meaning but dubious, fearful friends and extended family who thought we were going to take, put our children in undue danger. Acquiring visas from the notoriously resistant Nigerian embassy in Ottawa. Dealing with spiritual attack. Really, literally, the week before we left, my one son had his car totaled in an accident. Praise God, he was not even injured. But the next day, all of, most all of the kids got sick becoming aware of a tired and discouraged mission team that we were about to join in Mombila, as well as a demoralized and sometimes compromised Mombila Baptist Convention, coming to terms with the growing reality of corruption that was seeping into that, that whole group of churches on the Mombila Plateau, you know, affecting the very fabric of what was going on there, as well as the ongoing steep-seated issue of tribalism in that area, which was coloring every decision which loomed over every possibility, which seemed persistently stronger than any other influence on that plateau. It carried an added repugnancy. It had erupted into violence and horrific atrocities within a year or two prior where tribes were killing each other. And we went, oh, we can hardly wait, you know? And suddenly the hope we had as a family that we were going to go and make a difference and be pushing forward the work of the kingdom began to feel like survival, Mombila style. You know what I mean? It felt like that. As we considered the odds and the obstacles which seemed impossible to understand, much less embrace, there were times... I confess, there were times we felt that our best option was to find a pomegranate tree and move uh, over to it and more or less sit this one out, hope that the year would go by 
and what so long hoped for would perhaps just blow over us, leaving us resigned to the realities of life, unwitting victims of, of mission obstacles, which overshadowed the opportunities and robbed us with ex- from the excitement and the hope which we had when we began the process. Now, let it be stated with all certainty that there's nothing heroic or magnanimous about naivety and that truly ignorance is not bliss. It's not that we didn't want to know these things, but just as certainly the reality of doing missions can lead us, just like King Saul of old, to become immobilized. The reality of trying to impact our world for, the, for Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ, with the love of God, can leave us like Saul to feel the futility of hope for the reality of our world and somehow maybe we, maybe we just, we'll just wait until we all get into eternity and this all will blow away and whew, we made it, you know. That's, that's how it sometimes feels. But we need to return to 1 Samuel chapter 14 because we discover that there's much more to the story than the debilitating struggles of the realities of our world, that the tiresome, discouraging task of considering the odds in this world can be overruled by that which is more than empirically obvious. We read at the end of chapter 13 in 1 Samuel and then into chapter 14 that a detachment of the Philistines, this is verse 23 of chapter 13, a detachment of the Philistines had gone out to the pass at Mishmash. Sounds like a bit of a mess already there too. Verse 1 of the next chapter, and one day Jonathan now, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come on, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on that overside, the one over by Mishmash. He didn't tell his father. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Verse 4, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. It's like a, it's just like a precipice as he had to walk from here over to where the Philistines were. Cliff on the north towards Mishmash, the others on the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come on, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing, listen to Jonathan, nothing can hinder the Lord from saying, from saving whether by many or by few. Do all you have in mind, the armor bearer said, Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then. We will cross over towards those men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up to us, we will climb up because That will be our sign from the Lord that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes where they've been hiding. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, 
climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army of the Philistines. Those in the camp, those in the field, those in the outposts, those in the raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was panic sent by God. The living God was intervening. And suddenly the odds were changing as obstacles were falling away. Verse 16 unfolds the rest of the story where we read that John, uh, Saul's lookouts at Gebeah in Benjamin saw the army of the Philistines melting in all directions. It's quite a picture. They're just kind of melting away like ice. That's... And Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who's left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. Verse 19, Saul was talking to the priest. While he was doing that, the tumult of the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their own swords. Those Hebrews which had, who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites again who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in that hot pursuit. So the Lord rescued Israel that day and the battle moved on beyond beth Avon. Who could have believed it? This was a military impossibility. In a weakened and vulnerable condition, Israel ended up on the side of victory. Against all odds, Israel had won. Who could have predicted that? Well, Jonathan could have. In fact, as a in fact, Jonathan did. Remember what he said. Jonathan not only considered the odds, Jonathan also considered the Lord. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Jonathan knew that he himself could never defeat the enemy, could never really make a difference. Jonathan knew that the people of God in themselves, in their greatest effort, could never overcome the obstacles before them. But Jonathan also knew that victory belongs to the Lord. That nothing is impossible for God. I wonder if we really believe that. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. If God is for us then, who can stand against us? Do we believe God is for us? Is God in our presence? Is God within us? Is God among us? Is he challenging us? Is he giving us power? What's going on? That day, as the Lord walked with Jonathan and went on before Jonathan, God once again proved the age-old truth which he verbalized through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9, saying, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. 
During our time in Mambila, we saw such miracles all along the way. I'm not going to minimize the challenges and the struggles, and you know, some of you know the stories of our family after the fact and during that time, but early on we celebrated the hand of our Lord working through the generosity of God's people here in Edmonton providing funds far beyond what we needed as a family, and those funds help enable us as a family, as a whole family, to help hundreds of hungry, needy, wonderful people daily, every day, because of the generosity of God's people. Our house was, uh, was a place where people would gathered all the time. And even though, you know, we had struggles to get visas and get there and get some kids were getting sick and everything, we got there and things were falling into place. But most excitedly, we became eyewitnesses to the amazing miracles of unbelievers, in particular of Islamic unbelievers, opening up their lives to the good news of Jesus Christ. We saw it happening. In so many ways, it was nothing really to do with us, but we were witnesses of that. We were part of that. We had little parts of that. For example, a couple of years before we ever got to Mombila, there was a young Jonathan named Pastor Hagil. He had been a Muslim who had come to know Jesus Christ. And he was a recent graduate of the Mombila Baptist Theological School where I was able to teach. And he had, a, in his call to ministry as a former Islamic believer into faith in Jesus Christ, he had three-point agenda to reach the very Muslim-resistant region where he had grown up, to reach the village of Yambam. That was his own home village. Just before he came to know the Lord, the pastor, there was a small church in that Islamic village trying to reach the people of that village. And just before he came to know the Lord, the pastor's house had been burned down, the church had been burned down by the Islamic folks, and they had been chased out of town, the pastor and his family. But this young man, Pastor Hagil, went to seminary and decided he's going to go back and he's going to do three things. He's going to help provide a, a little medical outpost right there in that village. He's going to try to find reliable, healthy water source right there in that village, which it didn't have. And he would want to reestablish a church to be a visible, contributing part of that community. Well, that's when he came knocking on our door. Do you think we could provide a little medical outpost? We happen to have, as a ministry of NAB, a medical work going on in Mombila. And, and we provided finances and a medical outpost was started there. And then he said, you know, we don't have water there. Do you know of anybody that... It, when he asked the question, my friend Bernie Lemke and Lily came to visit Mombila that, that almost exactly at the same time. You know Bernie? He's the water man. He has been working in that whole region for years, getting water supply to village after village. And he said, that's no problem. And, and we had some money donated from people here in Edmonton, and we just... On the water source. Those are the easiest parts of it. But Pastor Hagil had a plan. He was there. He was saying, we ministered the people there. If we provide medical and we provide water, then we will reestablish a church. And he started a church gathering a very handful of people. 
I'll never forget the day when I was in, uh, a messenger came to my uh, door and I got invited to the village of Yambam. And I thought, well, that's, that's unusual. And it wasn't from Pastor Hegel. It was from the tribal leaders. It was from the Muslim folks that were in leadership of that community. These, And I arrived there one early one Sunday morning. And the whole village was in place. And there were all these tribal leaders standing in a line. And, and I got out of our 4 by 4 pickup and I stepped out and I wondered what's going on. And, and there was all the people of the village gathered around as the chief came over to me and said, we want to thank you as a mission for providing us medical and water and we promise we will never persecute Christians in this village again. A couple months later, Pastor Hagil showed, a, 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 he had this little projector, uh, which, which we had given to him, and it was a little box like this, and there were people packed inside that little church where, from the community watching the story of Christ at Easter time. The whole, you know, one of these, these, these dramatic things that most people hadn't seen there. And people are coming to know Jesus, even as we speak. A few years even before we got to Mumbila as well, there were a couple of old warriors for Jesus named Art and Dorothy Helwig, <laughs> who, again, some of you know, they had been missionaries in Cameroon, and then they kind of retired from the NAB, and then they joined with the Baptist General Conference, oh, the other side, you know, but, uh, and they started doing great ministries across the street from where we are. They started to establish a work of HIV AIDS, an advocacy center, to address the tragically advancing pandemic of HIV AIDS in that region, providing teaching, testing, orphan care to help prevent AIDS and eventually to work alongside of the Mambila Baptist Hospital and provide medical care for patients. Muslims, pagan leaders, as well as Christians and villages from the entire region were working together to help fight this pandemic together with these missionary warriors to bring solution to this horrendous issue, opening up their lives to the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ, that this help was coming from those who were followers of Jesus. And tremendous impact is going on to this day in that region. I remember one day Art Halway came to me and said, I was just over in a village and, and I came across a horrendous sight as, as so many of the parents had died of AIDS, there were children running around the village, and there, he went into one hut. There were 11 children in and around that hut. There was one old grandfather who was looking after those children. He had just suffered a stroke, and he was unable to help, and these little children were all on their own. But by the grace of God, that ministry stepped in and has helped that village, and that's just one example among many. I want to say over 30 years ago, a young NAB, Jonathan, had a vision from the Lord to go to the Mambila Plateau to live among Fulani Muslims, Fulbe Muslims. You've heard about that ministry. To go to live among an unreached people group. The Fulbe in the sub-Saharan part of Africa, there's 30 million Fulbe people, most of them Islamic people. But this 
young Jonathan from the NAB community decided he was going to go live among them to share the life and love of Christ in personal and practical fashion. The soil was hard. The seeds planted took long to germinate. But during that time, that young Jonathan did not see any people come to know Christ among the Islamic people. But there was a young boy living in that compound where this NAB missionary was from. And that young boy stood quietly observant as Dr. Alan Effa worked day to day with a testimony of love unfolding consistently the purpose of God. And over time, this young boy grew to become a young man who determined to follow Jesus. And a full bay church was born under the leadership of that boy who became Wakili, a leader among his people, who Wakili now himself is very much a Jonathan, moving the gospel of God forward. And that church he leads has now 130 members. And it's got its own school. It started its own medical facilities. It's, it's spread to another couple of communities like him that's expanding. And he's spearheading a, a move to plant church after church in and around that region. And he is working with a particularly sharp young seminary graduate named Aminu, another Islamic fullback converted believer in Jesus Christ from Wakili's church that gap is being filled the response is happening as Aminu is now heading up this mission called the New Dawn Initiative of which we've been contributing as a group of churches over the last few years to help the full bay people know who Jesus Christ is and the odds which were so against the gospel reaching into this Islamic community the odds are falling aside and as God is making provision as one Jonathan after another after another stands up and takes his, her role. In the midst of our impossibilities, in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the odds, and many times because of the odds, God moves in miraculous fashion. God wins because then it becomes indisputably obvious that he's the one that's done it. Then it becomes clear that he is the one who is really supernaturally working, that he remains redemptively active among the continuum of human history, that he is still passionate about his human creation, that he loves all of those millions, billions who don't know who he really is. And he wants the good news of his love to go out everywhere. He's very much involved in the likes of you and me and that all glory belongs to him. Yet what is just as obvious is that he accomplishes those miracles together with us. He values working in relationship with us. He could reveal himself in some unbelievable fashion to the entire planet so that everybody will know that, whoa, this is a holy God that we are, uh, we've been hearing about. But he chooses to do that through us. And he's ready and able to send the Philistines, the enemy, spiritual and otherwise, running to rout the enemy. But he's calling for the Jonathans of life to fill in the gap, to get involved, to crawl out of the precipices of life with sword, the word of God in hand, to humbly serve to take back territory that's lost to the enemy, to confidently work with the Lord to advance the unstoppable forward advance of the church of Jesus Christ. And do you believe that's going to happen? While you and I have opportunity, he's calling for the armor bearers of life as well to stand alongside of and behind the Jonathans of life 
to encourage for them, pray for them, resource those Jonathans, be really involved integrally as a team together with those Jonathans to unreservedly, categorically provide the strength, unwavering, unwavering support, declaring, do all you have in mind, go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Behind every person who is serving on the front lines across this planet, there is an army of people standing behind them, praying for them, supporting them, encouraging them, and calling others to rise up to join them. Our Lord will make amazing things happen all around us in faraway places, but the Lord, is, his eyes are searching throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's looking in this congregation today. He's looking around this city today. He's looking, he's saying, who is ready to serve me? Who is ready to do one more thing, to do it yet once again, not to be discouraged, not to be defeated, but saying, I'm ready once again to stand in there, be an armor bearer, or to go right on the front lines. And again, those front lines look so different, don't they, all over this world? They can look like Mambila, but they can look like the school that you're attending. They can look like the business where you are working, the neighborhood where you're living, the family that you are living in may be the front lines. And God is saying, it's not up to you alone. It's me doing this, but you've got to be part of this. And he's saying, are you ready, Terry? He's saying that to me. He's saying that to each one of us every day. He's not finished with me yet. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that even though I'm now 65 years old, that, I do, that maybe I have a lot yet to do on this planet as long as God gives me breath. Make no mistake that our Lord will continue to move his kingdom forward. And it will happen in supernatural fashion just as it's always happened. And he continues to call out from the mysteries and the wonders of his holy presence who shall I send? Who will go for me? Just like he did for Isaiah way back when. And as he turns to listen for the Jonathans of life, for the Isaiahs of life, for the sound of surrendered obedience, of passionate love responding, saying, here am I, send me, as he waits for them. Then he empowers that. And I don't know about how many times over the course of our year in Mambila, Tammy and I and our children paused in the middle of the action on the Mambila Plateau and recognized that we were in the middle of a miracle. I don't know how many times we just looked at each other and went, unbelievable, what just happened? We were privileged, eyewitnesses to the mighty hand of God, opening doors, changing hearts, transforming lives that were sometimes we felt like cultivators, but sometimes we felt like planters, and even sometimes we felt like harvesters, but we were in the middle of it, and we just kind of were feeling like we're just recognizing. I don't know how many times over that year we just looked at each other in wonder of God's incredible passion over the people of the Mambila Plateau and said, what an honor to be here. What an honor, because we get to do this. There are those of you who are here who are kingdom champions, who are kingdom leaders. Others may not have a clue what you are doing, but that doesn't matter. It's what God knows you are doing. You are active. You are serving. You are saying, I'm standing up. I'm doing what God's called me to do. I want you to know that, that God is with you. I want to remind you that you know it's no cakewalk. There's huge responsibilities. 
in the middle of the battles of life, aren't there? And sometimes you, you, you recognize as you share with that family member or as you walk across the street one more time to try to make an impact on that neighbor or as you try to speak into the lives of those who are working around you that this is your opportunity. You, step, you stand on the precipice like Jonathan and his armor bearer did on a precipice walking towards what God is calling you towards. A precipice of time and eternity regarding the lives and souls of those you are seeking to reach. I pray you will never lose the wonder of what you are doing and working. You are in intimate team with the Lord. And I pray you will know the supportive work of the church with armor bearers, people to pray with you, brothers and sisters, vicariously holding you up, providing that strength and whatever you need to help fill the gap where you are sent. But there may be some of you who are just sensing God tugging deep within your innermost. And you have been maybe for a while. You're saying like, oh, it just seems like so much to do in this world and I don't know what I can do. What's just little old me? But you're sensing in the depth you're being to become a world changer to do something of significance in the service of our Lord. While you have opportunity on this planet, you might be young, hearing that sense from God. You might be older, saying, well, you know, I've been retired for a while. And, you, and the Lord is just tugging and you're saying, What's that all about? Please turn your ear once again or for the first time to the wind of his spirit and hear again the ominous, exciting, emerging call from the throne room of the Almighty, really from the heart of our Lord, saying, who will go? Who will I send? Who will step forward? Are you ready to respond? know that there's really only one response. Here I am, Lord, send me. Lord, we recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing, but we can do all things through you who strengthen us. It takes faith for us to believe that sometimes. It's easier when we are together in, in a corporate gathering to believe that, but Lord, on those moments the next day or the next week or that next month when we feel like we're on our own, I pray that you would infuse a reality of your presence and your holiness, your call, your power, your purpose in this world to reach a lost world with the best news that could ever happen in this universe, the news that you love us so much that in your holiness, in your determination of, of deep love and passion for your human creation, you have given yourself. Lord, we would say, I'm ready to give our, myself. I pray I will, we all will. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>